Hello, Jeremy Smith. So nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Lauren. Happy to be here. Well, so, you know, I need to tell folks out there a little bit about, you know, your part in 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 what you do. So you are um, co-founder of Standard and Strange out in Oakland. And you guys have another branch in Santa Fe as well. That's kind of a recent... Yep. A recent edition, is that right? Yeah, that was, we opened that last fall just in time for everything to shut. Ah, painful, man. Well, yeah, so Standard and Strange, you know, like I've never been there in person, but, you know, you have such an awesome reputation in the industry. And we do have a lot of friends in the industry who, who overlap. We were just talking that, about that before on the podcast. But so you guys retail like, you know, Real McCoy's, Capital, uh, 316. Um, no, not anymore. No. No. Okay. Lost. Cut. Cut 316. Um, yes. Yeah. Tell us, tell us a bit about your retail experience and, you know, what you offer. So we started out pretty simply, just there wasn't a store in Oakland that we wanted to shop at. You know, we had no grand ambitions. We were just like, I can't buy jeans in Oakland. That was it. And we opened up with, we had a previous business where we made uh, Marina wool cycling wear. And we went toe to toe with Rafa. And that's an entirely separate story. Um, and we were worried about ethical production. We made our jerseys in the USA, things like that. And we were down to literally like two pennies to rub together. And we had signed a lease on this space in Oakland. And we're like, well, we're business people. We can figure this out. What's missing in Oakland? And the answer was, there's no place to buy the clothes we want to buy. So we called up all of our friends in the industry and said, hey, can we consign or buy just sticks that's a single piece of each item of each size you know what can we do to open a store in the bare minimum Mm -hmm. and we did and the first month we made all our money back and the second month we made twice that and we're like well we're on to something and we kept on growing month over month Uh, we doubled our first space was only 200 square feet not sure what that is in meters but it was tiny the closet little okay Got it. And we dealt, and then we took over the space next to us. And then when that was stuffed to the ceiling, we moved into our current space around the corner on the main street on Telegraph Avenue. And now that's stuffed. Wow. And we just kept on growing. And as we went along this journey, we were constantly questioning, well, what's better? What's, what's aligned with our values? What's aligned with, um, who we want to be? What kind of business do we want to be? Are the brands that are in here brands that conduct themselves in a way that we would conduct ourselves? Mm. And we get down there to the level of if we bring something in the store, it has to be something that we would buy at retail for ourselves. Like the value has to be there. Yeah. Even if it's tremendously expensive, it's still there's still value there. And it's something that, you know, one of us would conceivably save up to own yeah i think um yeah that's the thing about the beautiful product you have you know on offer is they're all so beautifully made 
And more importantly, I think, you know, the evolution of what, what brands you carry, what, you know, when you, when you kind of evolve your offering for your customer base, a lot has to do with these like really special um, relationships that you have with your, you know, your suppliers, your vendors. Um, and yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit because, you know, that relationship is quite behind the scenes, but just so crucial in, in the business. Um, tell, tell me about, um, yeah, what, actually I want to talk about your recent collaboration with Blue Maid, our friends Lily and Alex, shout out to Lily and Alex. Um, you guys just made a linen um, Western shirt with them, literally just so that was, came out. Yeah, that one was actually due, oh, I don't know, four months ago, but obviously things have been absolutely nuts here in the U.S. That came about from us really liking Alex and Lily. And, you know, what they're doing is incredible. Their dedication to made in the garment district, the materials they use. But the line wasn't for us. It wasn't right for our customer at the time. So we said, well, let's take one of our silhouettes. You know, we sell, you know, if we, if we look at our shirt sales, it's Western shirts. Mm. You know, snap front um, with the pointy yoke and pointy pockets and all of that. Let's do that, but let's do it the blue made way. So a little bit looser fit you know, ease off on the uh, aggressive pointiness of the detailing. Mm. And that's how we came together. And obviously it has to be indigo and, to fit and into your... Is it made in, in Belgian linen? Yeah, it's Belgian linen that's natural indigo, and then they hit it with a green over dye to bring the tone around to sort of that classic indigo tone. Um, and that piece has just been going crazy. Everyone loves it because it's very unexpected you don't really see a lot of linen westerns mm. and from the success of that within two days i was back on email with lily saying hey so let's push this further let's do another collaboration and awesome. that i can't talk about right now okay but it'll be two pieces and linen and you'll see it in the spring I'm so excited for that. I think that's such a nice crossover, like a, another cross-pollination, like when you bring that really organic. Um, I think linen has this really textured, organic, natural feeling to it. And it, you know, it creases so beautifully. I love crunching my linen all, you know, like I don't like nicely pressed linen. It has to be like all, you know, crunchy and scrunched up but and that with the 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 cowboy shirt must yeah it looks really beautiful and our friend Tomo he he um designed the label Tomo is like a close friend of ours also based in New York and he's super creative he he did um he does a lot of like like graphic design work he did like the the t-shirt for our friend Jamie um with her store Oh, orange, um, um, yes, raggedy I threads. Just, raggedy threads. Sorry, I just yeah, had a mental Neil, blank. My partner Neil is really good friends with her. I've I've only met her once, twice, but Neil's Neil and her are pretty good friends. So yeah, again, tiny Another, tiny world. Yeah. Where well, shout out to Raggedy Threads and Jamie. Um, it's they have a beautiful store in LA and in New York, um, selling some of the best vintage, really. Um, 
you know, really good solid collection. But anyway, back to the shirt. Um, I met Lily and Alex, um, a few years ago now at a trade show, we were next to each other and I was, I just arrived and, um, I had all these boxes that were shipped to my friend Eric Kavatek's apartment and I was unboxing everything and it had big, in big letters like Eric Kavatek and Lily and Alex just came up to me and were like, how do you know Eric? <laughs> and they started helping me out, like just, just complete strangers started helping me out on my booth because I was by myself and yeah our friendship kind of hit off and the a few months later they they came over to France came and stayed with me and we did a road trip up to uh, Kocek which is the on the border between Belgium and France and that is where historically all the linen of, of France was produced and and Belgium but so that is like the birthplace of of the linen industry so we went on this awesome road trip together and yeah been friends ever since I think I think friendships are are so important and like big part of you know this this business is like a lifestyle choice and a big part of that is is making sure that the the journey is like as good vibes and friendly Mm -hmm. as possible yes Oh, absolutely. And that's something that we figured out is early on, we tried chasing the cool brands and, you know, brands that just had heat because we knew, you know, we knew that we would move units whenever we released something. And this is before we had any reputation, any audience. And at the time, I think it was a great decision because we built an audience off the back of the heat from these brands. But long term, now the question we always ask ourselves before we let a new brand in is, are we really friends with these people? Mm. Do we want to hang out with them? Do we want to see them? Do we really want to deal with them four or five, six times a year when we all go to the same party in LA? You know, cause it's like part of this industry is it's this roving party that you can show up in Germany. You can show up in Japan. You can show up in LA, New York. It's the same hundred people everywhere you go. And it's who do you want to hang out there? Mm, yeah. You know, for, you know, in Yokohama, are you sneaking off to the secret pizza spot with the right people? <laughs> and that's sort of the the question that we ask ourselves is like, who are we going to, who do we really want to take with us to the secret spots after the after party? I and mean, the that sounds is, like know, an awesome quote. Um, and that's kind of a filter is like, there's plenty of brands in the world. So let's just work with the good ones. Hmm. Yeah, so important. And you, I think I'm sure the customer can feel that when they, they go into the space. Um, tell us a bit about your customer experience because I've I've read that, you know, well, I know that your people who are on your floor are super knowledgeable about their product, which is like the most important thing in my eyes. We just, so we reached the point, I would say this was, I can't actually say because our, my timelines are all messed up, um, COVID and everything else. But we only want to hire people who really care about make, how stuff is made and can articulate the value of the people and the process behind everything in the store. And there's a lot of times where we've, we have brands which is kind of like this blank mm. behind the process where you're just like, well, 
there's this anonymous factory somewhere that makes this, but we don't know much more than the owner of the brand. Mm. And those brands are really hard to sell. Mm. And there's some good people, you know, there's some good people behind those brands. Like I think one of the more painful things in terms of personal relationships was giving up naked and famous, but it's like their thing is, and I credit, I credit Brandon for this is he always wanted to, he wanted to make the, least expensive jeans in the most expensive stores is what he told me. Mm. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that out loud, but that, that was sort of like his business plan. And he's a great guy. He's weird, goofy. And I've spent plenty of time with him, but you know, the brand just wasn't for us after a while, you know, we're not a store for $130 salvage. Mm. And then there was also like a growing discomfort and awareness around their patch design, which just wasn't, I'll let you, your listeners, look that up. It just wasn't really a great fit in terms of having representation across our sales floor. Mm. Well, it sounds well. They seem more of a kind of more of an expandable business model rather than just uh, sticking to niche AF, like really intricately uh, thought out. Um, product, um, which yeah makes a lot of sense that 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 was a transitioning kind of brand for you. Um, that brings me to a topic that you can't, you told me you really want to talk about is, you know, you've taken a new direction with um, how you engage with the politics of what's happening in your community, in your country. Um, and I think it's a really important conversation. Um, do you want to, like, tell us, share sure. with us a little bit about that? I mean, what we really did was just sort of take the mask off and say, this is who we really are. And this is the kind of, this, these are the things we support. This is what we believe in. And if that's not for you, that's fine. You can shop elsewhere, you know? And one of the, when we really first started leaning in, it wasn't even super political. It was just, Hey, COVID's happening. We should help people. Mm-hmm. And that upset a surprising number of people were upset that we were even started charitable giving, giving heavily at that point. You know, that's when we made the 2% of revenue commitment. So that's not 2%. We state it as 2% of revenue for a very specific reason, which is, you know, you can say we give 2% of proceeds. Well, what is proceeds? Mm. Revenue is a hard number. It's how many dollars come in the door. Yeah. It's not your margin. It's right off the top. Mm. So we do 300 grand in a month. Well, okay. Six grand goes out the door, Mm. period. No questions asked. And I think the first... I think our first big push was a food bank. And then the same time that the COVID crisis was ramping um, is when the resurgence of Black Lives Matters happened in the U.S. And we mm-hmm. threw a weight behind supporting that as well um, financially and in every other way we could because, you know, the fact is nobody should be getting murdered by the police. Yeah. And we... I think in that was the time period, which probably 
again, it's every month has been very challenging in the U S cause it feels like a year and a day, but also a day. Yeah. Uh, I'll just arbitrarily say around May is when we really leaned in hard and we just started losing angry customers left and right. I send an e- we were sending weekly updates with, this is where we gave our money. This is the activism work that we did on Friday and we still do it every Friday. It's just, we don't send out the updates as much. Um, it's just a non-scalable thing. We couldn't keep up with do the work and tell people about the work. So we chose to do the work mm-hmm. and not say so much about it. But we're pushing out some new stuff next week to let us publish what we've done right away. Um, and I fielded, I personally was the one to field the really upset customers coming at us and saying, Hey, clothes aren't political. Stay in your lane. What are you doing? Stop it. I don't want, I just want jeans. And I had one guy go bananas on me with stuff that I'm not, not going to repeat on air. Um, I might still have the screenshots I can share with you privately, but it was just absolute insanity, just viciousness. And, you know, I accidentally, we accidentally sent him a marketing email later and he just lost his (laughs) mind, but he was so mad that our position is everybody gets to be alive and be taken care of. I, I mean, you know, America, not just America, but the whole world, the whole Western world has become so polarized. And, you know, you know, I was talking about this yesterday and with you, um, you know, the world, the Western world, I think we're seeing a collapse of Western culture as we know it. And a big catalyst for that has been definitely the Internet. And but but more so, I believe, um, based on, you know, a lot of reading that I've done, I mentioned a book called Morality by Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, that I'm reading at the moment, is like a a big shift uh, around the 60s from from the collective we as a culture to the I as, as the me centric culture that we exist in today. And uh, with that, you know, was the outsourcing of morality um, from ourselves, the responsibility of doing the right thing from ourselves, outsourcing to government and corporation. And therefore, you know, we've never seen this happen in our culture before. And obviously, there will be many kind of symptoms that, that we experience as a result of this. And polarization, you know is is crazy we have this crazy call call out culture in on the internet today we have really angry people writing angry messages about everything you know like I get I get like people complaining about the fact that they hate the sound of my voice well don't listen to my voice you know like it's just people have just gone nuts and apeshit on the internet but you know like yeah you know, people, if people feel that way, in my opinion, like if you feel that way, just don't engage with that thing that you, you're not into. Simple as that. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like you could have just, it's very easy to unsubscribe from our emails. If you don't want to hear it, you could just go away and you don't need to tell us about it. We're not yeah. interested. I stopped engaging after a few, like maybe a dozen of those people because I realized like, they're so far gone. There's no point in trying to, you know, even bring them back to center, let alone left of center. It was just, Mm. you know, 
beating my head against the wall. That one guy go on an un he got seriously unhinged. First, he started out with BLM is a terrorist organization. Black Lives Matters is a terrorist organization. And I was like, well, here's six articles stating that it's not including, you know, the neoliberal neoliberal publication of choice, The Economist. Mm. And if you're taking the stance that, you know, your stance tells me you're pretty right wing, but probably based in a heavily, you know, capitalist mindset, which means The Economist should be your Bible. Therefore, you should listen to it. And then he just went right into things I'm not going to repeat on a podcast. Mm. He's very upset. Yeah, I feel that, you know, a big underlying problem with this today is the fact that it's really hard to to find accurate, truthful information on the internet. We are kind of bombarded with garbage today. And it is proven, it has been proven to be a a political strategy, um, you know, using bots to or using our personal data to mine kind of like these social media campaigns to, you know, based on our personality and our personality type. So, you know, we have, you the internet has kind of become this crazy source of manipulation um, when it comes to a political ideology that yeah, I th- I feel like for many people today, it's confusing as hell to to figure out what's right anymore. Yeah, and it's not just the internet, but it you know going back to what you're talking about with the '60s is when we really took a departure from the idea of science as truth mm. and injected a little bit too much of the mystical and spiritual into regular discourse. And Mm. I'm not at all saying that's a bad thing, but it was used as a lever to pry people away from the truth. Mm. And to be able to say that anybody can make their own truth becomes super problematic. There's rolling right off the back of that. There was, there was a very strong push in American media to, undermine the idea of the institution so if you i need to find this book and send you the recommendation but if you look at all of the movies of like the 70s and 80s it was always the theme was like the government's incompetent who will save the day oh it's a lone hero so you know rambo etc it was all based on the same narrative of like don't believe the institutions don't believe the scientists just believe one random guy who shows up Mm. and that kind of those forces together really pried people away from being able to understand what was going on around them. Because if you just say, well, there is no truth, it's just what you believe. Well, there you go. There's no truth. Yeah. I think... Internet. Sorry, go ahead. uh, I was just going to say, I think, um, you know, this, this, you know, Sadly, this distrust in authority has, yeah, has really divided people. And, and you can see the effects of that in how every country has dealt with this COVID situation in such a d- drastically different um, way. Um, I would say that, you know, for example, I've been here in, in Bangkok the whole time for, for the COVID um, during, you know, since March. And before that, I was in, in France um, where I, I lived in a quite in the most conservative 
um, region of France, actually. That's where I was living. And, there, you know, that there was such a difference in how the control of the spread of the disease was handled based on public, the cohesiveness of public opinion. So, for example, in Thailand, there's been an incredibly solid, cohesive narrative of like, you know, we need to all do this, like leave our egos at the doorstep, participate, cooperate and do things so that we don't have to suffer, you know, a full lockdown. We try our best not to, um, you know, put too much weight on our, our medical system here because we're all going to do our bit. Whereas, yeah, where I was in France, a very conservative um, part of the country, um, you know, I was given dirty, dirty looks by what, just simply by wearing a mask to the supermarket at one point um, in the early days. So, yeah, it's really fascinating. What has you, been your kind of experience? It's, I've watched as, I mean, where I am, everybody is now masking, mm. but early on, because, because the way the messaging was presented in the U S which was, well, we don't know if masks work. Plus we have to reserve capacity for hospitals. That narrative, it's complex information mm. and it's not complex information. Isn't something that Americans are very good at absorbing, right? You just have to say this is, or this isn't. And saying, well, we don't know if masks work, plus don't use them because we need them for hospitals. That turned into masks are stupid, don't do it. Mm. Right. And thankfully, people have started to get the message, at least on the, you know, certain parts of the country that, yes, this does cut down the spread of the disease. And we can see from the curve and we can see from science that if you're not expelling particles you know, everywhere when you talk and breathe that you're going to cut down on a respiratory illness. But early on, I would go to the grocery store and it would be people frantically sanitizing everything around them, but no mask on. Mm. And then there would be other people just like not paying any attention to any of it and just like bumping into you. And it was all chaotic and stressful because we had no organized thought on what to do. Mm. I want to ask you, you know, you have been um, voicing your your opinion about this to your customers and that seems to be a, you know, a really bold stance for a, a retailer of, from a, a naive perspective, it could, you could be seen as a more conservative uh, retailer because of the fact that you you retail, you know, very, you know, um, traditional kind of clothing um, and you appeal to a certain kind of, um, of customer. Um, but do you think, do you think that this means that all, all um, retailers, corporate or small business should be voicing their political opinion? So... The answer to that is maybe, mm. but back to the conservative audience part, we did discover we had a lot of very, not a lot, actually a dozen mm. very 
conservative customers, but really our customer base tends to already trend left just because you can't get your head around. If you're super conservative, you want to step on everyone below you. So you don't give a shit if your jeans are being sewn in Bangladesh for a penny Mm. or actually 80 cents, but whatever. Um, Right. See, there's no value to you if you're conservative to buying from us. Can I can I be pro- can I be devil's advocate and can I say sure. what about conservative people in America who think that things should all stay in manufacture be manufactured in America and we should keep you know we should keep migrant work out we should keep everything made in America we shouldn't be um, you know buying things made in other countries. Well, most of those folks don't want to pony up. When it come, at the end of the day, you know, let's take, I don't know, we'll say Telesin. Um, they're around $210 a pair, which is four pairs of Levi's or 10 pairs of garbage jeans from Walmart. And the fact is somebody who is running around frothing at the mouth about Made in USA is also most likely going to freak out when they see what it costs to make someone mm. something in the USA. But to be completely transparent, it's like as I, you know, go around sewing factories and we stand up our own denim production, you know, the cost to sew a pair of jeans in the U S is more than you would pay for a pair of Levi's on sale. Mm. Wow. And the other part of it is if any of the made in USA folks peeled back the top layer of made in USA, they'd realize it's all migrant labor. So yes. in our prior company, I was telling you about this over chat the other day. Um, we were sewing everything in the USA for that company. And every single one of those factories is Chinese grannies mm. around here. It's mostly, um, I think it's mostly Hong Kong labor, but they're all in their fifties and sixties and their kids don't want to sew. Their kids are all doctors, lawyers, dentists, like yeah. they're not coming back to the factory floor and they're shutting down. You know, we're just losing factories quickly, which is a shame in every direction because, you know, there's the tax base eroded. There's the environmental aspect of moving goods around the world. Yes. And then there's the on-ramp for immigration because anybody can come in and sew and you can you know, that's a very good path to your next generation being successful in a new culture is integrating through labor. And that's kind of brings me to why one of the fights that we've been fighting is people trying to say clothing isn't political. And at the end of the day, it is. It's things you pull out of the ground that are sewn by humans mm. and touched by another dozen humans before they get to you. That everybody and all over the world consumes you know we all need clothes yeah yeah um but on the corporate responsibility part it's that's i think small business should definitely be out there with their politics because you know no small i don't think any small business can be on the side of conservatism as it stands in the united states right now because that that idea driven by individuality is super problematic. If you're a small business and you have to pick up the tab for healthcare, right? 
Everyone yeah. should just have health care. It should just be, Absolutely. you know, universal, no question asked. But it's such a drain on a small business or a drain on their employees' paychecks that it's crushing. Yeah. And it took me a lot longer. And even now, I do work a day job so I can have health insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's that is the thing that took me the longest to deal with before I was willing to even start to make the jump into business for myself was being insured, which is insanity. Yeah. So it's hard, it's hard to say anyway, small business, you know, I think and it's very easy for small businesses, you know, run by one, two, three people to expose their politics because they're probably all aligned mm. You know, big business. When you were talking to Charles yesterday, um, I threw this in the chat there, but, that's a bigger challenge and that's an easier one to call them out on. It's show me a picture of your board. Yeah. You know, you got 20, 30, 40, 50 executives in there. I don't want to see 20, 30, 40, 50 white guys staring back at me. Yeah. And I, you know, I realize our position is two white guys that start a clothing store, but you know, we're doing everything we can to expand and, you know, diversify. Yeah, but let me. I I want to say, you know, that as a as a mixed, I I first of all, I don't like identifying people by the color of their skin or their ethnicity. I'd rather judge a person by their consciousness and and who they are as people. And I, a part of me doesn't really agree with labeling people by their ethnicity, their sex, their whatever, because I feel like it puts. It puts you in a box and it, it just, this is from my personal experience, you know, people can disagree or agree with me. Um, but that's one, one thing I find difficult about, you know, labeling myself, you know, labeling oneself as, you know, a white person who owns a store because your choices as a white person, you know, your choices in life, you know, make you as the person. It's not it's not that the fact that you are white makes you who you are. Would you agree or disagree with that? I mean, absolutely. I, I agree. When it comes to small business, yes. Large business, you have such a big set of people to choose from. And this is where it gets ugly fast is a lot of hiring at the executive level is opportunistic. Mm-hmm. There's not a search. It's not made the best person take this role. It's like, well, I previously worked with this other person and that's where you get into trouble. And that turns into what's called the either experience gap or the opportunity gap where, you know, if you're a black woman, for example, you might not have had the chance to be a manager early on in your career. And then if you're not a manager, you're not a director. If you're not a director, you're not a VP and so on. And that cascades to prevent you from being able to even show up at the table mm. to, be on the board, you know, to be an executive at say Nike. Yeah. And the challenge, the, the challenge for solving this is when you look at somebody who's had an opportunity gap, you're forced to be, you're forced to be individually moral. Mm. Going back to that, you're forced to say, well, do I think this person can grow into this role or do I want to take this other person who's already done the job? And at some point, as you move up a large corporation, you are up against just raw capital and you're going to get punished if you make a bad decision. Mm. 
I think one thing that I I have observed, and this is not to say, not to generalize that it is true in every corporation, but I feel like the fact that um, a lot of a lot of that selection process um, has been based for board members, for example, or exec- executives has been based on what what school did you go to, what family do you come from, who do you know in this, and therefore when it's when it's a judgment call, ba- not based on your competence and your um, you know your ability, you know you end up having a lot of incompetent board members, incompetent mm-hmm. executives. And for a corporation, that could mean death, you know, honestly, slow death by incompetence. Yeah, I've, I've seen it happen and that pressure is real. So to dig in more there, I've gotten a lot of jobs because I come from an Ivy League school. It doesn't mean I'm even remotely better at it than someone from a state school. But In one particular instance, I was working for a startup that manufactured bras. And the founder told me, point blank, she said, you are not hiring anyone who does not have an Ivy League degree or Stanford or the equivalent. And they have to have already been at Apple, Google, Netflix or whatever. And all of a sudden you've just, boom. So that's, you know, you've, you've eliminated... 99% 99% of the population and made it impossible to diversify. And mm. from having gone to an Ivy league school, I'll tell you that that is not a good marker of quality of anything. Mm. Cause I would say 50% of the people I was in class with at least were there not by talent, but they were there to help pay the bills of the school. If you follow, wow. you know, the, they're the ones paying full tuition mm. so that folks like me can get in there and ride through on a scholarship. Mm. I, I, there's been, been this idea thrown around that, that schools are, have been overfunded and, um, and there is an argument that, you know, um, universities in the States have become breeding grounds of the extreme left um, because of their overfunding and um, and you know there has been you know identity politics has been a tool for for mass change but in a chaotic way in in the universities have you seen any of that happen or do you have any no so I'm I can speak anecdotally directly to that I come from a small town in Wisconsin, middle of the United States, all white. And the ex- this idea of radicalization by going to university is all of a sudden you're being exposed to everybody at once and you realize that the world is diverse and different. And then on top of that, you have science layered in. So a good narrative to defeat the, you know, somebody seeing a snapshot of the world and becoming science driven is to say, well, you know, is to distill it with or to try to defeat it by talking about identity politics or, you know, making it out to be like brainwashing. Mm. And, you know, universities do tend to swing or 
sorry, educated, the more educated people are, the harder left they tend to swing just because you start to develop a morality in a sense of like, well, all humans have rights. Mm. And just stating that swings you super hard left. Um, the idea that everyone gets to be alive and have a shelter and have healthcare. So that happens and that gets called radicalization, but I don't think there's any kind of program or anything like that in place. Just like show up and you realize, wow, there's a lot of different people in the world and we should take care of them. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, that's really interesting perspective because, um, you know, yeah, that you know, coming so for someone who doesn't live in the states and who just sees a lot of news come out of what's happening right now, it is really hard to get a real picture of of what it, the reality, is what what is true and what is not true. Um, yeah, so it's hard to kind of get my head around that. Um, but yeah, it is a really um, it is a really challenging time for a lot of people right now, um, especially with the, the elections coming up. You know, I think the whole world, the, the thing that I want to stress to everybody is like the American presidential election doesn't really just um, affect America. It affects the whole world. And, you know, I've seen I've experienced that, you know, through this lockdown with my business, with my manufacturers that I deal with, you know, the economic fallout from, you know, having so many stores that we supply to in America and, you know, you know, having them be forced to, to reduce their capacity or to be fully shut down for overly prolonged period of time is not only stressful for, for them as businesses, but for us in the rest of the world too. Yeah. I mean, this coming election is going to have a, the lasting impact will be, does the U S matter? And mm. the rest of the world will just exist around it and markets will change. But, you know, people here will still need food and shelter and things like that, but it's going to, you know, it won't be as prosperous Mm. And we're already seeing, you know, looking at the trends, it's like there's always going to be people who benefit from the division of this country. Right. Like if you if you got yourself into the top tier of workers, you know, if you have a good white collar job, you're probably protected for now. For now. Mm. But what I've seen happening is large companies trying to figure out every way possible to reduce their wages across the board. Yeah. So that means more, more work will be shifted offshore as companies figure out, well, we don't need to do that here. Yeah. Customer service don't need to do that here. Just like manufacturing, it'll all kind of slide away. Yeah. But we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I think um, for me, for America, I think it's so important to for America to focus on its own competitiveness with the rest of the world, um, and that means you know the base looking after their people, you know the base, you know, you know medical for everyone, education, affordable housing and education. You know these are all, you know, things. For example, you know in Thailand here we are seeing an incredible expanding middle class. We have we have benefited from 
nationwide free uh, 30 baht which is the equivalent of one dollar medical care for everybody we are still considered a developing country so you can see you know the competitiveness uh, you know the on a global scale of different countries you know you wouldn't want America to fall behind but in reality it's these countries with incredibly expanding middle classes are really catching up and you know that's it that's it that's a perspective that I'd like to share with people, you know, because it is quite shocking to, for, for a lot of people to find that out. Um, do you, so strategy-wise, what um, have so what are you planning for your business for Standard and Strange moving forward this year and next year? I think we'll continue on as we have been. Um, you know, there's while a lot of this country is suffering, I think the way that people who have incomes are spending their money has become a lot more um, thoughtful and focused. And, that, you know, people don't want to go buy 10 crappy things at Uniqlo. They want to buy one nice thing. Mm. And we've noticed as a trend that basics are done. Nobody wants to buy your basic stuff other than knitwear. People really want nice loop wheel sweatshirts mm. Our, you know, we sold out of loop wheel sweatpants like seconds after we got them in. Cause you know, everyone wants to be cozy at home. at home. Yeah. But we're also seeing people really grabbing the interesting stuff. Like we just launched fundamental out of Japan, which is heavy on the Boro and Sashko. And, um, it's been moving really well cause people just recognize the craftsmanship and, they want to buy nice, meaningful mm. things and not just go throw some more money at, you know, Walmart or Amazon. Mm. So, I mean, I think our next year is just steady as it goes and see, see what happens. Um, you know, we'll, maybe we'll start panicking later this year. Who knows? But we have a very good relationship with all of our customers and, that has carried us through this crisis and will probably continue to carry us. And we put a lot of effort into having the best possible customer experience online in store. Like we want to be welcoming, friendly, and you know, we were never intended or want to be sort of this, you know, 10 years ago, if you went to a specialty denim store in the United States, it was very cold and like prescriptive and you had to be cool or get out. Hmm. And it was kind of like, here's a pair of jeans. You like them, go away. And we always wanted to be the opposite of that. We want to be like, come in, hang out. You know, even if it's virtually, even if you just want to send us like 30 emails and never buy something, it doesn't matter. Like, just hang out, be welcome. Mm. You know, if you want to talk about boots for two hours, fine. Whether or not you purchase something is kind of immaterial. It's more like just be here, be welcome. Mm. You know, because we don't want to make, we didn't want to be, exclusionary or make people feel awkward for what they have or have not learned about or purchased. And we're still getting better at that. Like we're learning how we can be even more inclusive, um, changing the language of the site, changing the models we choose to use. Um, you know, looking at basically we look, we've been just looking at everything we do in terms of how can we be as welcoming as we want to be. Yeah, I think, um, I think I've always believed in 
exceptional retail experiences that doesn't mean that definitely is the opposite of alienating a customer i think i think in the traditional kind of high fashion world um there's always been this this idea that we should be this kind of snobby alienating you know space that people admire but feel intimidated when they enter that space but i've always believed in the making it the best possible experience out of retail and that means you know treating it more as you know being hospitable the idea of hospitality has never kind of really overlapped traditionally with fashion retail but to me hospitality is like a key word that i would want for the best retailers that i love to to embody um moving forward and like in in uh early days in covid i was reading a lot of uh business of fashion to just kind of get my head around you know what what you know analysts were saying and you know exceptional retail that provides unique experience for their customers will will triumph and and mediocre malls for example mediocre shopping mall retail experiences will die i think we may be seeing the end of shopping malls here in thailand yeah. here in thailand you know i do have um many friends and colleagues who work for these huge shopping mall um you know companies and thailand has become a shopping mall saturated place but since covid we have seen a like a real decline in sh- in people using shopping mall spaces um exceptional retailers have pulled out of shopping malls and invested in standalone storefronts and and you know why would you you know if you think about it you if we're reevaluating what we love and and how we find meaning in our life we wouldn't want to why would we want to step into a shopping mall that looks the same in china than it does in thailand than it does in paris than it does in the states you know why would we if we when we start to be able to travel again why would we travel to these destinations and step into a shopping mall that you know is the same old boring crap you know so there is yeah. a lot of hope Yeah, I think there's a whole, I don't know, I, I, sort of hard to distill into a single idea, but I believe that the global luxury brands are going to slowly become irrelevant. Because it's like, you go to Causeway Bay, you go to Ginza, you go to um, Central Paris, or um, you know, parts of London, parts of New York. It's all the same shit, mm, and it's that's great shit. for. It's fine if you're like an up-and-coming consumer class who's just buying on the brand, but sooner or later, people burn out on buying because it's got LV stamped on it. And you know, I'm not no particular shade on luxury brands. You know, like some of these guys are still doing incredible work, but it's not interesting. Mm. And just like you look look at the curve on coffee. So you had shitty diner coffee. And then um, Howard Which Schultz love, goes to Italy, comes back. I, I do too. Shitty, it's either I that love shitty diner coffee. Yeah, give me that, or give me like you know single origin direct trade, but nothing in the middle. Yeah. Um, 
And then you had Starbucks come and sort of elevate it a little bit, but then that became a global brand. And now it's become this, you know, if you are wanting to flex on your social capital, it's, do you know which roaster is best and where they're at? Right. Like, you know, and that's going to, that's going to carry through into clothing and apparel and the new version of luxury is which handmade thing can you only buy in this spot? Do you know? Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Hi, puppies. Uh, One sec. I'll pause. Um, Right back on? Hi. Yeah, hi. Yep. Yeah, it's going to be like three or four minutes of chaos while the child comes in, but we can keep going on that that okay. tangent. Um, it's like uh, I think about it as like in my brain, it's third wave consumerism because, you know, third wave coffee. But that's a long rambling topic. Yeah. Yeah, well, I have a lot of positivity and hope. Um, I hope that we can all work out a the balance between being safe and keeping this economy rolling and and continuing um but i think for it you know really special retailers like standard and strange and really special brands like um many brands of our friends um you know we like blue maid and capital and and nigel cable um that you know that beauty and that special product and that special experience triumphs um yeah i hope i hope so but that's that's about all we have time for thanks so much jeremy (laughs) yeah we'll have to do this again because like there's just so much we could talk about for sure yeah yeah there's a whole yeah i really wanted to get mad about the plastic plastics companies but (laughs) next time (laughs) next time for sure yeah, well, the, this was for, wonderful. Yeah, it was really great. Uh, for folks out there who, who want to check out Standard and Strange, how can they do that? Um, best thing is just hit our website, standardandstrange.com, and Instagram, of course. Um, those are our two main channels. It's about the only place to find us. Our awesome. Santa Fe store is open um, in New Mexico, and... Oakland will be back open again in a couple months. We're playing it very cautious there because it, uh, the safety of our staff is more important than making a few extra bucks. I'd rather open slowly than just throw the doors open and risk anyone getting sick. But, you know, Absolutely. keep an eye on our website. We'll probably be doing by appointment within a month or so, I hope. Yeah. And well, then walk-ins again towards holiday. Awesome. Well, I hope so too. I hope that things will things will be able to, to be more safe very soon. But thanks so much, Jeremy. Um, yes, thank you for taking yeah. the time on your Saturday morning. Take care. Bye, everybody. Yep, bye.